PA Books is a production of PCN, a nonprofit television network. Listeners like you make our programming possible. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. I'm Phil Beckman. PA Books features interviews with authors of books about Pennsylvania history, culture, and people. In 1777, the Pennsylvania government ordered 20 men from Philadelphia to be arrested and forced into exile in Winchester, Virginia. Author Norma Donahue joins us to talk about his book, Prisoners of Congress, Philadelphia's Quakers in Exile, 1777 to 1778. This week on PA Books, Norman Donahue author of Prisoners of Congress. Norman Donahue is the author of Prisoners of Congress, Philadelphia's Quakers in Exile, 1777 to 1778. In 1777, 20 men from Philadelphia were arrested and forced into exile in West Winchester, Virginia by the revolutionary government of Pennsylvania. How did you come across the story of these Quaker exiles? Well, I read a book by Catherine Drinker Bowen, a Philadelphian, who wrote about her father, who was Henry Drinker a hundred years ago in the early 1910s, and he was the president of Lehigh University, and he was a lawyer, an engineer, a miner, and um, he had he was an Episcopalian. And he had a great-grandfather also named Henry Drinker, but he was a little bit chagrined that his great-grandfather had been exiled to Virginia, quote, for refusing to bear arms in the revolution, she wrote. And that really drew my breath in. I had never realized anything like that. And uh, I knew it had to be for more than just refusing to bear arms because that, that would not have been enough. But she said he was exiled with 19 other men uh, for a long time from Philadelphia to Winchester, Virginia. And that was extraordinary. Uh, talk a little, a little bit more about the drinkers, because they, they play prominently in the book. Elizabeth Drinker was a very significant uh, diarist during the war. Uh, and, and then Henry Drinker, of course, was exiled. Uh, who were they? Henry Drinker was a transatlantic merchant who owned ships in the triangular trade between Philadelphia, London, and the West Indies. And lots of money were, could be made in that trade. And he was very good at what he did. He was also an ironmaster in that he owned an interest in an iron forge over in southern New Jersey. So he was a very talented guy extremely bright and very high up in the offices of the uh, Religious Society of Friends, in particular the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting of Friends. And um, as such, he was in contact with Quakers all around the greater Philadelphia area, even out into other mid-Atlantic states. And his wife, Elizabeth Sandwith Drinker, uh, they were both in their early 40s, and she had six children at home very young, and she had um, uh, a two in, a formerly enslaved servants that they had freed. She had one indentured servant, and she had a, a, a sister who helped her in the kitchen, and it was a pretty big household, 11 people. and. Um, she was in charge, but meanwhile, every night, pretty much, she would write in her diary, and she did this for 49 years, from about 1759 to 1807 when she died. And uh, so she would write down the daily activities during the Revolution from day to day to day. It is pretty minute, and she would mention everyone who came in the house uh, and uh, socialized with them. 
Uh, so she kept track of a lot of interesting people, and her diary is viewed as the uh, greatest source of day-to-day -day routine things that people did on the home front uh, during the late 18th century. And it's been published in 1991 into three volumes, constituting 2,200 pages. So this was an extraordinary woman. Uh, in addition to the drinkers, you also uh, say that you focus on the Fishers, the Pembertons, and the Gilpins. Why did you select these four groups or these four families to focus on? The, the Fishers, the Gilpins, and the Pembertons were most prominent in the Philadelphia yearly meeting. And although the Patriots uh, singled out and arrested 17 Quaker men, really 12 of them were the main targets because they were the uh, most influential of the local Quakers in Quaker uh, um, external affairs, particularly on the meeting for sufferings by which they recorded the sufferings of their religious members who were suffering for their faith uh, in being picked out by the patriots uh, for persecution. Uh, so this was what was going on, and the patriots wanted to silence the most influential Quakers so that the younger Quaker men would uh, not listen to them and go and join the militia. Uh, and one way to do this was to get them out of town. The other reason they wanted to get them out of town was that the British Army was 40 miles away, and they were sure to capture the city uh, within days or weeks. And, uh, and of course they did, and they occupied the city for eight and a half months. And uh, if they had uh, a chance to meet a lot of Quakers, uh, Quakers were viewed as leaning toward loyalists, loyalists to the king. And so uh, the fear was that they would collude with the British and tell them where the Patriots' secret caches were of arms, munitions, and records. Uh, for instance, where the, where the Journal of the Continental Congress was hid. Uh, these kinds of things they were afraid the Quakers would divulge because they would not participate in any way in the war, would not accept the currency, uh, would not uh, recognize the local uh, duly elected officials, and many other things like that. There, there were uh, more than a dozen ways they refused to participate, and the Patriots needed some way to silence their opposition and to make sure that they don't collaborate. From the establishment of the Pennsylvania colony up until the Revolution, Quakers dominated Pennsylvania government. How did the, the coming of the Revolution, the Declaration of Independence, and the new revolutionary government in Pennsylvania affect Quaker power? Well, uh, just as they had done 20 years before, at the start of the Seven Years' War, the Quakers, uh, hearing that war was in the offing, uh, withdrew from the government. And uh, in other ways, uh, an immigration surge of Scotch-Irish uh, Presbyterians and others uh, increased. So uh, the, there was a change in the amount of uh, Quakers having any involvement in the government. Uh, and as, as the complaints about British rule evolved from economic uh, to uh, outright war, uh, the Quakers had their sacred peace testimony uh, that they wanted to protect, and they would not have anything to do with war. So if the government was uh, administering the, the precautions that were being taken uh, to defend against the British invasion, uh, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. How did issues uh, such as class or uh, perhaps other things not having to do with the revolution uh, affect some of these power struggles if 
if a new group of people comes into power in Pennsylvania, and uh, were there longstanding grievances that they had against the Quakers? There was a resentment that they wouldn't uh, ever, uh, during the Seven Years' War, uh, appropriate money for a militia to defend the, especially the people on the frontiers, and these were often the Scotch-Irish. Uh, and so they, they, they had a long-time bitterness with the way Quakers administered the colony. Uh, and uh, as for class interests, there was some class struggle in that people were alleging that the wealthier uh, commercial class or merchant class uh, was uh, uh, oppressing the uh, lower-class workmen. Uh, I think that was a minor factor, but it, it, it was there. Now, as the revolutionary government uh, comes into power, uh, they begin to pass uh, militia acts and uh, test acts uh, requiring loyalty oaths. Uh, what did the Quakers feel about oaths, and, and why was that a sticking point for them? Well, oaths had, had been a sticking point a hundred years before in England during the English Civil War. Early in the 17th century, the um, uh, king had required several different oaths, and they were always contentious, uh, an oath of allegiance to the government. Uh, and uh, Quakers uh, believed that the Bible said they shouldn't take such an oath. And so uh, their refusal to take the oath began to be taken as a political statement, and often in England during the English—before the English Civil War, they were put in jail. So many, many Quakers were tortured and jailed uh, in England uh, during the prior century. And so when oaths came up again in the 18th century in Philadelphia, uh, again, Quakers adamantly refused to take an oath. And back then, you couldn't travel from county to county without having a certificate uh, that a justice of the peace said, this man has taken an oath. Uh, so it was, uh, it was a little dicey back then. And in the Militia Act, the military forming in Philadelphia to defend the city, uh, uh, it had always been seen in Pennsylvania that because they were pacifists, uh, they wouldn't have to uh, serve in the military. But uh, now the military forming in the city wanted them to pay for that privilege, and it was entirely different. William Penn had allowed them to be free of military service uh, without any cost, and now uh, the new government wanted, uh, wanted them to pay for it, and they, they resisted because, again, if they had to pay not to go to war, that would support the war, and to them, that was tainting their own lives unfairly uh, with uh, connection to the war. Test Act uh, said they, they, everybody had to take the oath, but it didn't give any um, penalty for not taking the oath, except that you would be relieved of certain civil rights, like voting, using the courts, uh, suing somebody, being able to do that was taken away from you if you wouldn't sign the oath. So uh, that, that was the penalty. Were the Patriots keeping track of who was not taking oaths and who was not participating in, in many of the requirements that they were putting down? They were keeping very close track, and they know they knew who, who was uh, uh, who had taken the oath and who had not. You had to sign up. They kept the list. And those, those who weren't uh, paying their taxes because they said it was going for war and those who weren't taking the oath sometimes were put on a secret list that I call the hostiles list. They were hostile to the new governmental order. And that was kept for a couple of years, from 75 to 77. And when it came time that the British were near, they took out the hostiles list and they wanted to get those kind of people out of the way. 
especially the most influential of them, which included the Quaker leaders. Did the Quakers view the revolutionary government as legitimate? No. They said that the, the Quaker leaders said that these were men who were usurping the rightful posts held by the king's agents and that they weren't a legitimate government. They didn't say it too publicly, but everybody knew it, that, uh, that they didn't think it was legitimate. And that struck right at the heart of the revolutionary fervor. Now, one of the uh, key moments in, in this story that you tell is the emergence of what came to be known as the Spanktown Papers. What were those papers and, and why were they important? Major General John Sullivan from New Hampshire was in northern New Jersey defending against the British, and he said that uh, he seized papers from one of his deserters. And when he read them, it looked to him as if Quakers all over the colonies were organizing to transmit military intelligence from the American side to the British side. So he sent these six pages, which were later known as the Spanktown Papers, to John Hancock at the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. And he said, if these Quakers can do what they're doing, they're e even more dangerous than the British. Well, as a matter of fact, the papers were false papers. They, they had no validity. Uh, they, they weren't really written in the Quaker style. And uh, nobody knew who had written them. And they purported to be written by the Spanktown Yearly Meeting, which there was no such yearly meeting. Uh, and it wasn't a Quaker meeting. It was supposed to be in, in a, a part of Rahway, New Jersey. Uh, but it just didn't exist. So, um, but Congress, incensed by these thoughts that Quakers were undermining their efforts, insisted that the newspapers print the Spanktown papers, which on their face seemed to be Quaker and seemed to suggest that the Quakers were treasonous. And if so, this was highly shocking, and people got up in arms about that. They used it then as the pretext to say, okay, we got the Quaker leaders arrested, and we're going to send them uh, to the frontier where we keep our POWs, our prisoners of war, Hessians and British soldiers from Trenton and Princeton, where uh, Washington had won some uh, handy victories. Was there anything in these papers that specifically implicated anyone by name? There were no names of any individual Quakers in these six pages of papers. Uh, moreover, the papers asked questions about where is General Johnson and his how many troops does he have? But there were no answers. Uh, so they looked incriminating, but they were really proof of nothing. Did the Quakers in Philadelphia have any kind of an opportunity to challenge the, the veracity of these papers? That's another thing. Neither the Continental Congress nor the executive of Pennsylvania would give the Quakers any hearing in their own defense. They, they demanded and lobbied for a hearing. They thought it was terribly unfair when uh, the Boston Massacre happened in 1770, John Adams defended the British soldiers who were accused. So he thought it was only fair that they have competent legal counsel. And he was very strong about that. But now, when the Quakers were accused with false papers, did they give the Quakers a hearing? No. Time and again, they refused. You mentioned John Adams, and he, he does figure in your book in this, in this uh, situation as well. Uh, what were his attitudes towards Quakers, and, and uh, what role did he play in, in the ultimate arrest of these men? That's a long story, but part of it is that uh, John Adams, when he came to the First Continental Congress, was called to a night meeting uh, in Carpenter's Hall. And as he opened the door, there were 20 Quaker men with these black beaver hats 
on their heads sitting at the long table. And they were there, he soon learned, to criticize Massachusetts for having uh, anti-Quaker laws a uh, hundred years before and having hanged four innocent Quakers uh, in 1660. And so he said, uh, the, the, the Quakers said to him, uh, Massachusetts should rescind these laws uh, if there's ever going to be any cooperation between Pennsylvania and Massachusetts. He was quite insulted. Uh, he felt he had been ambushed, and he never quite got over it. He it, thereafter had a, a prejudice against Quakers in Philadelphia, and uh, he continued to uh, find them very troubling. So when the Spanktown papers arrived and John Hancock assigned the investigation of the Spanktown papers to a three-man committee of spy committee on spies, John Adams was one of them, Richard Henry Lee was another, and William Dewar was the third. They were all lawyers, and so you would expect that they would try to investigate who wrote these papers and how they, how they came to be and, and what people among the Quakers were uh, passing military intelligence to the British. But no, the committee hours later reported back to the full Congress and just gave their conclusions. We conclude that the Quakers, if given a chance, will betray us to the British. And therefore, we should at least arrest these 11 named men. And they read out the names, but the names had nothing to do with the papers. And uh, again, it was uh, a bit of an overreaction and done without any investigation by three savvy lawyers. Well, let's talk about the arrest. How did it actually come about? What was, once they made the decision to, to target some of these men, uh, what happened then? Well, uh, the Pennsylvania, the Continental Congress recommended to Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania's executive got uh, a hand-picked group of 25 militiamen, uh, brought them together, the arresting party, and uh, tasked them with arresting the Quakers. They gave them the names and addresses, and they fanned out across the city, knocked on people's doors, we're here to arrest so-and-so, uh, and, and uh, they knew Quakers would not physically re uh, resist something like that because they, they don't believe in violence against other men. And so they took them in, uh, kept them in the Freemasons' Lodge in Philadelphia for nine days while they thought about what to do with, with them. Continental Congress um, debated the, the question of what to do with the Quakers for nine full hours while the British Army was 40 miles away, 15,000 strong, and uh, expected, at least, to just wipe aside uh, Washington's troops. So this was a pretty significant thing. Usually when you read about the American Revolution, you might hear a Quaker mentioned here or there, but it's a, it's a fringe thing. Here, the Quakers were at the very epicenter of the American Revolution for 10 days in September 1777 in Philadelphia. And it's a very, very striking story. So as the, the British and the Continental Armies were maneuvering in Pennsylvania, how, how did they get these Quaker men out of the city and towards and out into the western part of the state? They had to take a circuitous route because the militia was assigned to lead them into exile in Virginia. Well, how do you get to Virginia? Well, they decided to go via Valley Forge and Pottstown, Lebanon, Harrisburg. Carlisle, uh, uh, Shippensburg, and then into, into northern or western Maryland, Hagerstown, and then across the Potomac uh, to Winchester, Virginia. Uh, they took this really circuitous route so as not to, not to run into the British Army or the Continental Army. Took them three weeks, 200 miles. We'll be back in a moment with the PA Books podcast.
Enjoying this podcast? Please support PCN with a donation at PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. So after they were arrested and were being transported, did, did they have an opportunity to, to challenge their arrest? Were they ever charged with anything? Was there ever a, a criminal proceeding? So right before they left, the Quakers were savvy, and they, they sent their lawyers to a judge to get a writ of habeas corpus, which is an ancient bundle of rights from the time of Magna Carta in the year 1215. And it was procedural due process, and if they could get before an impartial judge, the judge would, dis would determine whether they were legally arrested, in which case fine, or illegally arrested, and he would release them. So they did that before the new chief justice just installed days earlier, Thomas McCain. And McCain said, approved. And then the writs of habeas corpus were taken, were taken to uh, catch up with the caravan of soldiers leading the Quakers to Virginia, and when they caught up to him around Pottstown, uh, they uh, took him to the guards and said, here, you've got to get these men before the court. And the guards said, no way. Uh, the executive of Pennsylvania has said, we've got to get him to um, uh, uh, Lebanon, where we'll hand him over to other people, and they'll take him into Virginia. So we're going to ignore this order from the chief justice of the new state of Pennsylvania. Uh, and the next day, uh, Thomas McCain, the chief justice, went to the legislature. And there he said, you know, guys, we got to uh, strip these Quakers of the right of habeas corpus because they came to me and they asked for it, and I had to give it to them or I would have been fined myself. But uh, uh, we should pass a suspension of habeas corpus law. This is the only time in Pennsylvania's 245-year history we've had such a law. And um, so the legislature did pass that law after the fact of these men having been arrested and exiled. So it was also what we call in legal Latin an ex post facto law, passed after the facts of the case. Again, another point of illegality, this law. And um, so they were stripped of this, these civil rights uh, that they were otherwise legally entitled to, and the men continued to take them on to Winchester, Virginia. And uh, the Pennsylvania legislature called this an act to add to the security of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in special cases, which the Quakers turned around and called it's called the banishing law. And they thought this was specially tailor-made for these 17 Quakers and others who were with them. So as these men were being transported uh, throughout Pennsylvania and then down to, through Maryland and into Virginia, did, did the people in the communities that they passed through know about them? And how were they treated by the public? Well, people threw rocks and gathered uh, anxiously. Here were Tories being transported into captivity, uh, imprisonment in Virginia, and you can imagine the, the uh, clamor that arose when they arrived in these small towns. And meanwhile, people there were passing out uh, flyers or broadsides saying, you know, these are the Quaker exiles, and we're taking them away from Philadelphia so they don't blab too much. Why were they taken to Winchester, Virginia? Well, Winchester is uh, on the frontier, and it was far enough away from the coast so they couldn't easily escape. It was also far away from normal post routes so that the, uh, they thought the mail couldn't get to them. Uh, and uh, they were among uh, uh, British uh, captured soldiers and Hessians, uh, and uh, this was the Continental Congress's plan 
uh, for such people. When they arrived in Winchester, what were their accommodations? Were they imprisoned? Were they, where did they live? Well, it was odd, because uh, they were told from the beginning they would have to pay their own way. So you're being taken to prison, and you have to pay for your lodging and food. So this is weird. Uh, and when they got there, they lodged at first for three months at an inn, Philip Bush's Inn in Winchester. And there they were four to five men to a room. So you can imagine how crowded that was. But they had, they held a silent worship there, their own Quaker meetings uh, twice a week. And they even attracted some outsiders who came. But initially, there was a mob. And they were saying, we've got all these prisoners in the barracks, and now you're giving us 20 more Tories. Uh, get them out of here. And there was a clamor again, and the sheriff had to uh, calm them down and uh, send a message to the governor to ask him what to do. And meanwhile, the Quakers were uh, felt unfairly treated, being taken out of their native state. And now they're in Virginia. They, they thought, we ought to prepare a protest to the governor of Virginia. And so, the, so they did that. But they were, they were held. And during the uh, winter months, uh, it got too expensive at the inn, so they decided to lodge in the homes of fellow Quakers who were in the area. And um, there were a good many of them in that, in that area. And they, but, but they would be miles away from each other. So they, in the dead of winter, they had to brave the the, the weather in order to get together and meet again, whereas at the inn they could do it uh, easily. So it became more and more troublesome. But no, it wasn't torture. There were only two loose guards. They could walk around the town and that kind of thing. But um, uh, two of them actually escaped, but they were not Quakers. They were, uh, a, one was a former Quaker and one was a never Quaker. Uh, but the, uh, the, 16, uh, or the 18 of the, uh, of the Quakers and one ex-Quaker were there, and two Quakers died of natural causes while they were there. So they, in effect, became martyrs to their faith. Were they able to write letters to their families? They did write letters, uh, and they received letters from their families. Um, but in order to deliver the letters, they had to get someone who was going to, say, Wilmington or, or some, some other town, and then to hand it off to somebody else who was going to Philadelphia. Uh, it wasn't easy to get it, but uh, they did uh, transmit letters back and forth. And the letters became a great source of comfort for them in Winchester, as well as an even greater source of comfort uh, for their wives and families back in Philadelphia. Uh, living under occupied British forces. Now, you talk about the significance of the, the Quaker social networks uh, throughout North America. How important was that for these men who were, who were out on the frontier? Well, it was enormously important. Um, there were probably 15 Quaker meetings between, say, you know, Chad's Ford, London Grove, and Philadelphia, and Bucks County, and uh, what later became Delaware County, and the state of Delaware. Uh, and you can imagine there were even further rural Quaker meetings throughout Pennsylvania, Maryland, and, and Virginia. Uh, and uh, over 150 names I counted of individual Quaker people from those meetings who came and, and either delivered uh, produce or delivered news or delivered letters or just gave comfort and morale to the uh, uh, exiled men, uh, especially when two of their comrades uh, died while in exile. So while these men were in Winchester, Virginia, what were their families experiencing in Philadelphia? Well, um, to be around a two armies 
who are at war in a hot war is a difficult position for anyone who's a civilian. And so there was privation, food privation in Philadelphia. There were irregular hours. The Army would go out in the middle of the night and raise a clamor and go over to New Jersey, or they would have uh, uh, strict uh, curfews when you had to be at home. Uh, and there was, uh, and then, and then the, the soldiers wanted to be quartered with civilian families in Philadelphia, and, and that included um, officers. And the officers uh, tried to get lodging at some Quaker houses because they heard that, you know, Quakers were not uh, as vociferously uh, anti-British as the others. And so, for instance, at the Drinker home, uh, three different officers asked for lodging there. Elizabeth Drinker turned them down the first two times, saying, oh, my husband is away. Uh, and that was enough. They politely backed out. But the third time, uh, a polite and well-ordered gentleman from uh, Britain who was a major and in charge of some of the Hessians uh, said, you should take me rather than be stuck with someone else. And eventually, he obtained lodging by December 31 of 1777, and he stayed there until June the 16th. Uh, of 1778. Uh, Major John Crammond was his name. Now, under a Patriot rule, uh, the Quakers uh, refused things like blankets and, and other supplies and other what they saw as support for a war effort. Now that the British were in charge in Philadelphia, uh, how, how did the Quakers respond to their requests? Well, they also uh, uh, denied them uh, blankets. Uh, so they did it to both armies. And, uh, but for instance, at Elizabeth Drinker's house, they went up, the soldier, the British soldiers went upstairs and grabbed a couple of blankets and said, Howe's orders, General Sir William Howe's orders, and uh, left the house. So during this period of the British occupation of Philadelphia, uh, the men were in West Winchester, Virginia. Were the families still continuing to try to get them released? Well, uh, many Quakers uh, were assigned to go to Lancaster, the temporary state capital, and lobby uh, the executive of the state of Pennsylvania, and also go to York, Pennsylvania, to lobby Congress. So several delegations were sent there, and I counted over 35 times the Quakers uh, protested uh, to get the men released. They were very organized about this, and they were very assiduous, and they would send groups of six uh, men at a time uh, to lobby the politicians uh, to let the prisoners go. Finally, uh, apparently someone in the legislature uh, was uneasy uh, about having uh, men from Pennsylvania who were arrested only on suspicion but no crimes ever either, either alleged or proven uh, against these men, and they were being held 200 miles from their families and loved ones, uh, and that this might set a bad precedent on a future day. So this sentiment among the legislature finally prevailed over the uh, Pennsylvania executive and um, they asked Congress to give the men's jurisdiction back to Pennsylvania, which Congress did. But then Pennsylvania dragged their feet and dragged their feet about letting the men go. And finally, the women were afraid that the men didn't have enough medicine. And they had a lot of illnesses, some minor and some, some uh, more, uh, some less, less so. Uh, and they uh, decided that they should send a women's mission to deliver the medicine, and maybe they could get through where the men could not. Uh, so the 19 women 
uh, signed a petition. But when the, ma when the Quaker man, who was formerly a lawyer, had drafted a petition, they rejected it. And they decided to write their own, and in their own gendered way, they expressed things differently than the men had, and the men's petitions so far hadn't been successful, and the question was, would this one be successful? So four women were uh, appointed to go first to Valley Forge to see Washington, and then to uh, Lancaster and York, if necessary. They went to see Washington, and they got through, and when they arrived at Valley Forge, Washington kindly and cordially invited the women to a afternoon supper with his entire general staff, 20 generals. And, uh, but, but Washington said, I can't do anything with, for you. It's just not in my jurisdiction. So after uh, supper, the four women were invited upstairs by Martha Washington to her sitting room. And there they sat and chatted amiably for a period of time. And afterward, Martha came down to spend the night with George, and she may have said something to him. Perhaps there were sympathies exchanged. And she may have said, uh, George, can we do anything, anything to help these women? women just uh, an hour later, or so, George sends a letter to the governor of Pennsylvania, and it says these two sentences at the end. The women seem much distressed. Humanity pleads strongly in their behalf. So I call it the nudge. George nudged the governor, or led him from behind, perhaps is another way, uh, to releasing the men, which thereafter occurred as the women went to, went to uh, Lancaster. Uh, and sure enough, as soon as they got there, the, men, the government was prepared to get the men back from Winchester and release them uh, from Lancaster. So you said release them from Lancaster. So they didn't, they didn't just release them in Virginia and, and for them to find their own way back. Were they then escorted back to Pennsylvania? They were escorted back to Pennsylvania, and the Quaker men expected to be exonerated from anything they, that was uh, the insidious uh, allegations that somehow they were traitorous. Uh, however, when they got to Lancaster, they were given a slip of paper to say, these men are discharged, and that's all, nothing further. Let them back into Philadelphia, but we don't exonerate anybody. And uh, that's what they did. When they returned to Philadelphia, it, the city had been occupied by the British. So the, the Philadelphia campaign had, had gone on. What did they find at home? What, what had changed? Well, uh, it was devastating. Uh, the destruction caused by armies in a the city. Uh, they would, for instance, they would take all the wood from your shed use it for firewood. Uh, they would occupy houses of people who had left the city to escape the British, but they would practically destroy the house. And even they even occupied Benjamin Franklin's house, and they stole a painting of his uh, a self-portrait, a, a portrait, excuse me, uh, by a noted uh, painter. Uh, and it uh, only found its way back to America 130 years later. Did they continue to try to clear their names? They, they realized, I think, that the Pennsylvania government would be intransigent and would not uh, make, take any step to clear the names of the Quakers. And until 1789, when the new government, new federal government, was elected under the U.S. Constitution, uh, of 1787, uh, they also lifted then uh, the uh, Test Act so that you no longer had to take an oath. And it was only then that the Quakers realized that God had established a new government 
and they could respect the new government uh, once Washington and the apparatus had been put in place. Now, was there also an effort to try to counter the, the assertions made in the Spanktown papers? Uh, two years later, in 1779 uh, or 80, uh, the Quakers published a vindication of uh, Quaker um, exiles, uh, saying they had committed no wrongdoing and uh, they were innocent, and that was finally published. But it was too little too late, in a way. People felt the way they felt. And the Patriots no longer talked about how they had treated the Quakers, which, to my mind, uh, was they had borrowed a page from the play playbook of Parliament in England and used measures that were authoritarian in nature. The suspension of habeas corpus, for instance, the ex post facto law, the uh, using fake news to smear the Quakers and then insisting that it be published in the newspapers. All these techniques were such, such that they were uh, very similar to those that Parliament had used to support divine right kings. And this authoritarianism had been imported into the Pennsylvania uh, government uh, in, in the treatment of Quakers. And uh, it was rather shocking in all to take stock of it after writing this book. Were these men able to reintegrate into their lives after their, uh, after their imprisonment? All of the targeted uh, pr most prominent Quakers uh, came back to the Philadelphia area. And with the exception of three of them, uh, uh, reintegrated into the society in which they had, which they were the third generation of their families and were elected to trusted positions on the Common Council of Philadelphia uh, and in the Pennsylvania legislature and in other uh, volunteer efforts around town. So they, they certainly did that. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't like it was before, uh, the wars started in, in the 1750s, but uh, they definitely reintegrated into society. Now you say in the book that uh, Quakers began to develop their own mythology of the exile and the surrounding revolution. What, what was that mythology? If other people bragged about their uncle or their grandfather who fought with Washington in the war, they had to have something similar in their lives, too. And they focused on the very principled men who had been unfairly exiled from Philadelphia. And uh, Charles Wilson Peale started his museum in uh, Independence Hall, or next to Independence Hall. And uh, there he had a man who could cut silhouettes of people's characteristics rather than paint their uh, their faces, um, and uh, these became something, an art form that the Quakers uh, appropriated uh, because it was less vain, they thought, than uh, painted oil portraits. And these silhouettes of Quaker men, they would keep in albums, and in between their own grandfathers and great-grandfathers, they would put a silhouette of one of the Quaker exiles because these men had been looked up to in the Quaker community and were revered for taking such a principled stand during the Revolution. And this gave them comfort and gave them a different uh, a narrative of how the Revolution had gone in their lives. Now, towards the end of the book, you talk about a personal connection to this story that uh, connected to a house that you grew up in. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. After I'd written the book, I was doing some research, and I found proof that uh, the uh, 18th century stone farmhouse where I spent my first six years had been owned during the Revolution by Quaker 
Minister Robert Valentine and his wife, Rachel Valentine, an elder in the church. And, uh, and then I realized from Elizabeth Drinker's diary that on April 28, 1778, the Valentines had hosted overnight Henry and Elizabeth Drinker. Now, the Valentines owned six or seven different uh, stone uh, houses. So it's hard to tell which one they overnighted in, but uh, I found it uncanny that uh, our house had been owned by uh, hosts to Henry and Elizabeth Drinker. So I felt that the, the idyllic home of my youth had been tied neatly into the obsession of my retirement years, and that that was a pretty neat thing in my life. What would you like readers to take away from your book? Well, I think the main takeaways are that the Patriots used an unusual suite of techniques in dealing with the pacifists, and they were unusually aggressive and even illegal and unconstitutional. And that was not the way I thought about our founding fathers. Secondly, that many people know that Lincoln used a uh, suspension of habeas during the Civil War, but not many people know that a suspension of habeas had been used during the Revolutionary War. So I think this is a, uh, a new data point that people will have to think about. And I think, lastly, uh, the Quakers may have been persecuted during the American Revolution, but they also gave us a lot of uh, values uh, that have carried down to the present, uh, still in Pennsylvania. Uh, and I think the, their, their skepticism toward governmental overreach uh, has always been one of the clear things that they've transmitted into the genes of many people, uh, and uh, one has to be careful of that. Well, we've been speaking with Norman Donahue. He is the author of Prisoners of Congress, Philadelphia's Quakers in Exile, 1777 to 1778. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Bill. Listeners like you make PCN programming possible. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN Select app. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.